It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Good morning, folks. Good morning, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. And this is the Larry Kudlow Show. And you can live stream us if we can turn down the over-exuberant music, etc. There we go. I think we're online. So it's LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com. You can live stream us throughout the country, around the world, and throughout the solar system. Maybe even the Milky Way. I don't know what that is, but it's big. I know we can get it out there. We have a lot of work to do today. We have to cover inflation, which is roaring. It's public enemy number one, single biggest issue out there. It is not because of Vladimir Putin. It is because of bad economic policies from the Biden administration. We have my hero, my free speech hero, Elon Musk. Okay, Elon Musk. I I know him just a little bit. I did some work with him when I was in the White House. He's a very, very smart guy, and he's doing the Lord's work by trying to take over Twitter and get us back to free speech on these social media platforms. So we will talk about that. In fact, uh, Charles Payne, my colleague from Fox Business News, will be on the 11 o'clock hour. And uh, Charles and I will talk about Elon Musk. Let me begin with the inflation stuff, because this is undermining the whole economy. And we had three key inflation reports this week, and they're all bad. And I will just say at the outset, this is a problem that's caused by too much spending, too much deficit finance, and too much money creation from the central bank, the Federal Reserve. All right, government spends the money, it issues bonds to finance it in the open market, and then the Fed indirectly buys the bonds and pays for it with new cash basically created out of thin air. Central banks have that power. They create money. We used to call it bank reserves. Nowadays, it's the balance sheet they call it, quantitative easing. The Fed tells us quantitative easing is coming to an end and we're going to go to quantitative tightening, but they are talking the talk but not walking the walk with a puny one quarter of 1% increase in the Fed's target rate, so-called federal funds rate. The federal funds rate is a rate controlled by the central bank. It's reserves traded among the large banks. They buy and sell with each other, but the Fed sets the price. Whether that's a good idea or a bad idea, that's what they do. Now, look at the consumer price index, uh, up 1.2% in March, up 8.5% for the 12 months ending in March. By the way, three-month change is even higher, 11.3% at an annual rate. So when the three-month is faster than the 12-month, that's a trend that's not good. You don't have to be a brilliant mathematician to figure that out. And um, you could take out energy and food, the so-called core rate, and you're still up 6.5% for the 12 months. And that's the problem. 
Wall Street was trying to find some you know, good news. Maybe the thing has slowed down, but I don't think so. Why don't I think so? Well, other inflation reports, which perhaps are not as sexy as the CPI, but they're very important. Uh, for example, producer prices, those are the costs paid by companies, large and small companies. We used to call it wholesale prices. And that is up 11.2% for the past 12 months. 11.2. And the past three months, it's up 14.9% at an annual rate. So that's another bad signal. All right, got it? Another bad signal. And then finally, we got the import prices. That's uh, when we buy stuff from China or Europe or Canada or Mexico or wherever, Japan. So import prices rose 12.5%. That's the 12-month change, 12.5%. So you, you can't tell me that inflation is somehow cooling down because it ain't. 8.5% CPI, 11.2% PPI, 12.5% imports, the three-month changes are faster than the 12-month changes. And importantly, look, economists look at the so-called core. They exclude food and energy. Now, that's kind of silly because people pay food and energy. Food on the shelves is exploding. Okay, food prices are up 12.2% at an annual rate in the past three months, 12%. 12-month change is 8.8%. So people are getting clobbered by food. But if you took all that out, those are the so-called volatile components. Well, that's what people pay, gasoline and food. But in any case, there's no evidence that we're seeing a slowdown. The so-called core rate of the CPI is 6.5%. On the PPI, it's 7.0%. And so however you slice this pie, we got ourselves an inflation problem. And as I said, the root cause of the inflation problem is not Vladimir Putin, although I acknowledge in the last month or so, uh, oil prices, uh, six, call it six weeks, I'll give them six weeks, but it, it, it took off way before then. The CPI was under 2% at the end of 2020 when Donald Trump left office and rose steadily to 4%, 5%, 6%, 7%, before Vladimir Putin, really even almost before his troops were massing on the east side of Ukraine. And then, yes, uh, energy prices had the last leg up. Uh, Biden was selling, I don't know what he was selling. I mean, the guy's doty, but he was saying 70% of the increase in prices is a result of Vladimir Putin. N nobody, I mean, I don't know where he finds that number. He gave a speech last week. What did he do? He gave a speech? And then he finished his speech, and then he turned around and started shaking, looking to shake hands with people, but there were no people there. I, it's too strange for me. I don't, I, Lord knows I don't wish him ill, but, I mean, he is kind of doughty, isn't he? I mean, it's cogn cognitive impairment. We all suffer from it a little bit, but I think he's suffering from it more than just a little bit. But in any case, I'll just say we have an inflation problem. It is public enemy number one. It's killing Biden in the polls. We had some, what, Quinnipiac, it's a liberal poll, had 33% approval rating. It's insanity. 
The cavalry is coming, no question. The cavalry is coming this November. Um, good story. Hedge fund manager Ken Griffith out of Chicago giving a fortune to the Republican House and Senate campaign committees. Anyway, we still have to live with this before the cavalry gets here. And when the cavalry does get here and the GOP takes over the House and Senate, they still really need the White House to make the necessary changes in spending policies, federal spending policies, federal tax policies, and, of course, uh, Biden's silly ideological left-wing radical environmental policies, the Green New Deal policies. So I don't see, I mean, I think the inflation is going to be a problem for a while. How long? I'm not smart enough to know exactly, but I'll tell you this, it's going to be a multi-year problem. I mean, the Fed's inflation target longer run is 2%. So the numbers we're talking about here are, you know, three, four, and five times their long-run target. 2% is, you know, something akin to price stability. Although, you know, in my book, price stability is price stability. That means zero. But 2% is a good approximation. And here's another problem you've got. Wages. Wages are rising nicely. And I'm glad of it. People gone back to work. It's not that they've created new jobs. We still have fewer people working today than we did pre-pandemic. A couple million people. Uh, we can't find them. And, of course, you've got 11 million job openings and about 6 million-plus unemployed, which is a very difficult situation. But wages have been rising. The economy has been expanding. But inflation is rising faster than middle-class working folks' wages. All right, real average hourly earnings for non-supervisory workers, in other words, these are the workers, not their bosses. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's up. Uh, it was up about 6%, 6% plus. But when you factor in inflation over the past year, they've actually fallen. Real wages have fallen 2.7%. I mean, that damages middle-class pocketbooks. And if you switch over to something called average weekly earnings, Adjusted for inflation, real average weekly earnings minus 3.6%. And that's why Joe Biden's so unpopular. Because the inflation that he doesn't even barely acknowledge, and when he does, he blames it on Vladimir Putin, which people don't buy, nor should they. But the point is, when you factor in inflation, people are losing money weekly. Losing money over the past year. We've had 12 straight declines in real wages. <clears throat> that is very, very bad. You can go back, by the way, you look at 2018, 2019, even 2020, the pandemic year. These were the Trump years. Real wages were rising a lot. And inflation was, you know, anchored at around 2% or slightly less. Some of this is because energy prices have exploded, because the Bidens have put the clamps. I call it the regulatory octopus. No permits for drilling. 
No permits for pipelines, no XL pipelines, no Anwar in Alaska. I guess they've loosened up somewhat. We'll get to Senator Kevin Kramer from North Dakota, uh, which is Bakken country. He will be on later in the show to talk about this. But um, federal leases, they're going to let some back, give some permitting, I think. But they're going to charge higher royalties. And the amount of land has been cut back substantially. Crazy energy policies. Energy independence was a good thing. It was a good thing for American families. It was a good thing for the economy. And it was a good thing for knocking down Vladimir Putin. You didn't hear a peep out of Putin during the Trump years. Remember that? Not a peep. He invaded Crimea under Obama. He invaded Georgia under George W. Bush. Those were both times of high oil prices. And he's obviously invaded Ukraine under Joe Biden with $100 oil prices. Trump stopped that out. We were the swing energy producer. 13 million barrels a day plus. We're still a million and a half barrels a day short. That has contributed to inflation, but folks, that's just one piece of it. Inflation is raging all across the board. The diffusion index for the consumer price index is 75, 80% across the board. And that's the problem. And so we find ourselves with inflation running much faster than real growth. We will get I don't know, maybe this coming week we're going to get a GDP report preliminary for the first quarter. Real GDP probably come in 1% to 2%, and the inflation rate's going to be 7 8%. That's called stagflation. And it is going to be with us for a while, a long while, and it is likely to go into a recession sometime in 2023 next year or 2024. It's hard to predict these things. But I'm just saying stagflation is uh, not our optimal situation. That is not good. We should have real growth at 4 or 5%, at least 4%, with low taxes and fewer regulations and plenty of energy and tough trade and some order at the border. We don't have any of these things. This is why the cavalry is coming, because Biden's agenda has completely collapsed and fallen apart. But point I'm making is, point I'm making here is, We're in for rough sledding on the economy. Stagflation is not good. Declining worker wages after prices are factored in is not good. It is demoralizing. You work hard, but you take home less after inflation. That is not good. It is demoralizing, and it drags down the economy. And that's a big problem. It's public enemy number one. And... As an optimist, we can solve this problem. Reagan solved it 40 years ago. We had the last bout of serious stagflation. We know what to do. Stop spending. Stop printing money. Stop over-regulating. We know what to do. But those solutions are not likely. When the cavalry gets here this fall, November, we can start working on it but it's going to be a long haul. In one year, Joe Biden has put us so far behind the eight ball. It's disconcerting. This is America. We don't have to put up with this nonsense. We know all about how to achieve prosperity and national security. 
good growth, stable prices, plenty of energy, and peace through strength. We'll get there. We will get back to that. But in the meantime, we're going to have some difficult sledding. Let me take a quick break. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We'll be right back after this. Now, back to The Larry Kudlow Show. All right, welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. It's The Larry Kudlow Show. By the way, join us during the week. Fox Business. The name of the show is Kudlow. We were Monday through Friday, 4 p.m. Eastern Time. I was off last week. I had a lovely week at our place in Connecticut and Easter week. By the way, uh... Happy and Holy Easter, Happy and Holy Passover to everybody. I neglected to say it. It's a wonderful time of the year. Wonderful time of the year. It's a time of resurrection. Palm Sunday last week, Easter Sunday tomorrow, Good Friday. I don't know. In my faith, it's a fabulous time of the year. So Happy Passover, Happy and Holy Passover and Easter. Um, I want to raise a quick point here. Before we break, we have Art Laffer, the famous Arthur Laffer of the Laffer Curve, advisor to Ronald Reagan, advisor to Donald Trump, supply sider extraordinaire. Uh, Art will be on at the half hour. Uh, But I want to just mention Elon Musk again. As I said at the top, uh, I know him a bit, not well, just a bit, had some dealings with him in the White House. Um, His crusade for free speech and his attempt to take over Twitter is a fantastic thing, in my judgment. And I wish him all the luck in the world. Uh, we'll have Charles Payne later in the show talk about a lot of the details. I mean, Twitter's, you know, got a poison pill. They're defensive. Obviously don't want to be taken over. Uh, Elon's got to have to raise some cash to do it. I think he's going to get some help, by the way. But the key thing here is not so much the financials, but the crusade for free speech. And I've said this, I said this on on our show uh, week before last, but I, I don't care about who's right and who's wrong. And I think this whole issue of, you know, setting up algorithms to see who's right and who's wrong, who should be on the social media platform and who should not be on, that stuff is all wrong. That just censors. Now, mostly it censors conservative tweets. That's really the issue. Keep conservatives out. Facebook is guilty of this too. Google is guilty of this too. Apple is guilty of this too. A number of them are guilty of this. Instagram is guilty of this. Facebook is guilty of this. YouTube is guilty of this. So what I'm saying is Elon Musk's crusade to restore free speech is so important to our democracy and our freedom. And he knows that, and he has said it with great clarity. And that's why this is an important, hugely important story. All right, we're going to take a break. We're going to have Art Laffer come in and talk about inflation and the economy and economic policy. And, of course, Monday is tax day. We're going to have a special on Fox Business, The Kudlow Show. Stay with us. Lots more to do. Congratulations to Elon Musk for fighting the good fight. And that's all you can ask. Stick with us, folks. We'll be right back after this. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great pleasure to be with you today. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. You can live stream us 
LarryKudlowShow.com, LarryKudlowShow.com on the Internet, all across the country and the world and the solar system. And we welcome back to the show my very dear friend and mentor, Arthur Laffer. Dr. Arthur Laffer is chairman of Laffer Associates. He's also a Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient. He is also the most important economist of the last, I don't know, could be the last hundred years, could be more than that. Anyway, Arthur, thank you for your time. It is my pleasure. I come to you today from an outer galaxy, not from the solar system, (laughs) just so you know. You understand that stuff. I don't really know what the hell it is. (laughs) It is is really cool. In fact, the show is really cool. You've got a lot of stuff, even during the breaks. The information is really cool. I mean, the analysis of Putin, it's, it's, it's a really cool show, Larry. Well, thank Congratulations. you. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, Art, we had a string of very bad inflation numbers, as you know, the CPI, the PPI, and import prices. It looks like there's no relief in sight. I want to visit with you on this for a bit. First of all, why is inflation skyrocketing, in your view? What's the cause of this? I really don't know what the cause is, Larry. I honestly don't. But what I do know is the dynamic, and the dynamic is explosive. Uh, If you look at the monthly changes, you know, we look at the headline number as a year-over-year change uh, of of inflation, whether it be the PPI, Producers Price Index, or the Consumer Price Index, or spot commodities, or whatever you look at. And what it shows is that all the monthly changes are way above the moving average, which means that this inflation number is accelerating quite dramatically. If you look at, let's say, in October, November, what the inflation numbers will be like, the numbers dropped out of the series uh, because they're dropped out of the yearly change are very low, which means that you're going to see a lot more inflation coming on just before the election. And if you look at the producer price index, it's way above the consumer price index, which means that inflation is being pushed from the industrial background into the consumer stages. So you know, all over the place. Monetary policy is outrageous. It's conducive to inflation. So when I look at this, I have this inkling that we're going back to the late 1970s and maybe even worse. So let's let's talk about that. I was did a I was on my pal Brian Kilmeade, uh, Fox Great News. Guys. Yeah, he's a wonderful man, and I taped a segment for his Saturday night show. And he asked me, you know, about the Reagan inflation uh, or what Reagan, I'm sorry, really the Reagan solutions to inflation. Yes, that's correct. So, Art, I said, he, here's what I said, and you, you can critique this, tell me uh, right or wrong in emphasis. I said, first of all, Reagan gave Volcker the ground to stand on, strengthen the value of the dollar and cut back on the money supply. Second of all, uh, Reagan decontrolled oil prices, and instead of going to $100 a barrel from 40 it went to $10 a barrel in a couple of years. And third of all, Reagan slashed tax rates across the board, which eventually produced strong growth on the supply side of the economy. So that contributed to lower inflation as well as reviving growth. Now, those are my you know quick things. Those three um, points are exactly on target. They're precise. The only thing I would have mentioned as well is the political process allowed Volcker to raise interest rates way above the inflation rate to allow monetary base to grow much more slowly. So the restriction of money, you had more output, uh, less money growth, which means more goods and less money means that inflation comes under control. 
What also happened, Larry, if you'll remember, is that it didn't happen overnight. It took a long time right. to bring that inflation down to reasonable levels. So we're here today without any of the wonderful things you described that happened under Reagan uh, and uh, no recognition that this is a long process. Once it's built in, these things are very hard to turn around. It's going to take a couple of years. Oh, at least. It yeah. took Reagan probably four years, Larry. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we brought the interest rates down. When we took office on January 20th, 81, the prime interest rate was 21.5%. We aren't close to where that is yet. So we have a lot of time to go. We have the elections in November, and that will hopefully change the House and the Senate, but it won't change the presidency. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't imagine the presidency or the Fed ever changing their views on this. They're too proud and too ignorant to be able to do it. And then you have to wait till the presidential election in 24. So I am looking at the potential of a very serious inflation for a lot of years to come. No guarantees on that, but that is my fear, and you can see why. You know, I, I, look, I agree with you. I don't – you've got guys on Wall Street saying, well, by the end of the year, the inflation rate's going to be down to 3 4%. I don't see that. I don't either. Where's no. that coming from? Well, it may it may happen, but I don't see it. There, none of the preconditions have changed in such a way as to warrant such a forecast. They're going to have to raise their target rate well above the inflation rate. Exactly. That's what I mean, really was the key to Volcker's success in bringing that inflation down on the money side. That's key. Yeah, I, mean, I know. And, and I, I mean, so they raised the target rate. By one quarter of 1%, big deal. They may go 50 basis points uh, at the meeting next month, but they're still so far behind the curve. That's what's so troubling about this. And it's not only behind the curve. The curve is accelerating faster than they are accelerating. They're falling further and further behind the curve. And it's just very and, – and, you know, they're, 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 they're arrogant. They've got hubris. Uh, when you look at Powell, Larry, and you remember the conversations with the president about Powell, but he's not up for the job. He's not a Paul Volcker. He's not a McChesney Martin. You know, he's not an Alan Greenspan. He's really not. And so you've got poor leadership at the presidency, at the tax level, and at the Fed level. So I don't see any of these people saying that inflation at the end of the year is going to be 3 or 4%. It, it, they may be right, I mean, but I sure don't see it. You know, the argument for Jay Powell was let's back Powell because any substitute's going to be worse. But that's always a very bad argument. It's you think terrible. About it. And and remember, people forget this, but look, Jimmy Carter did appoint Paul Volcker. He did. Now, he, he didn't give him he didn't give him the backing that Reagan gave him, to be sure. But he did appoint in other words, this you know, they they have not yet voted officially on the Jay Powell thing. And he doesn't really deserve to be uh, renominated for a second term as Fed chair because he botched this so badly. He botched it. Art, and the Fed and the Fed staff are still making excuses and giving up hopes where they don't exist. I mean, it's a kind of institutional arrogance that is remarkable. And hubris is what I call it. But you're completely right. They've got a bad model, and they're doubling down on a very bad model. And they just don't have the leadership skills to be able to recognize a mistake and not make it again and then do the right thing. They just don't have that ability. Is this this actually a stagflation? Well, it's coming into one. It's coming into one very rapidly. 
I mean, if you look at employment growth or any of these other growth numbers, the growth rates are dropping very sharply. In employment, Larry, we aren't even yet to the level of employment we had prior to the pandemic in, right. in February of 2020. We're still two million jobs short of that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. everyone talks about the rebound and the jump up, and, you know, it is. But, you know, it should have been a much faster rebound from the pandemic low. But it's not right. been. And GDP growth, the loss in GDP growth from trend on February of 2020 uh, has been, uh, you know, continuous and greater. I mean, all of these things point to stagflation of a very serious magnitude. Now, the big question is, does it turn into a recession? Well, I, you know, I don't know what a recession means in this type of situation when you're starting at such a low base. But, yes, the, the answer simply is GDP growth. GDP is not where it should be. It, the lev- it's way below the potential line, and it, it probably or could easily go a little bit lower. But it's so low that dropping even further is just shocking. Is unemployment going to go up in this uh, scenario? Well, so far they've paid everyone not to work. So, n- no, not so far, because uh, all they do is guarantee anyone who goes off of the work, quits their job, is going to be fine with but with payments from the government. I mean, and now uh, what happens at Davos, I think uh, Biden's now going to do Build Back Better for the World. <laughs> Based on its success here. It's just all. shocking, Larry. Just, <laughs> it's, it's the old phrase now. I'm here in Kentucky today with you, and it's just no brains, no headache. These guys don't even know they're stupid. That's fabulous. And it's just bad economics. I mean, in Econ 1, you were taught all these things were wrong. I mean, you can't tax an economy into prosperity. That's stupid. A poor person can't spend himself into wealth. That's also stupid. And you look at all of this stuff, and as Larry Gatlin here says, it ain't rocket surgery. It's just plain common sense. And, uh, you know, they refuse to admit it because they they hate right-wingers more than anything on earth. But, you know, now it's extending way beyond just ideological bounds. They're going really to the wall, and it's it's scary. What um, you're right about the jobs. There are about 152 or 153 million uh, civilian employment pre-pandemic That's we're right. several million below that now exactly. so actually 151 right now so actually right what you got is people are returning to work but you're not creating new jobs no, there are no new jobs if you were the creating the jobs there would be 100 154 and a half million so so we're probably three and a half four million off where we should be on trend that's a lot of people yeah, it really is. What? How do you solve this problem where you have um, job openings are over 11 million, but they're only about 6 million plus unemployed? Yeah. That's a very bad differential. And I, I don't and know how to help you solve that. the reason for it is really simple. It's because, you know, the, the wages that people receive after taxes and benefits and cut off of welfare and all of that stuff are so low that they don't want to work. And the, even though the employers are trying to employ them, they've still got all these costs associated with it. So there's a huge wedge that has been driven between the demand for labor and the supply of labor. And that's what you're seeing today is that huge wedge being driven there by welfare payments, by transfer payments, by all of this stuff, and by the prospects of taxes. And, you know, I don't know how to get it out except by a wholesale change in the political structure of mm-hmm. the country. 
a return to Trump or Reagan. We need to or Kennedy. Uh, and you wrote about that beautifully on, on uh, the book. But it's just we need to return to common sense economics. All right. All right. Stick with us. I want to take a break. And on the other side of the break, there's a headline this morning from the Tax Foundation website. Biden budget would raise income tax rates to the highest in the developed world. All right. I'm going to ask you about that on the other side of the break. Folks, we're talking to the great uh, Dr. Arthur Laffer, chairman at Laffer Associates, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, uh, one of my dearest friends and my mentor. We'll be right back with more. I'm Kudlow. Please stick around. Larry Kudlow. Kids just want to get out in the world and have fun. But their lives have been put on hold. Getting them thriving again safely starts with protecting them from COVID-19 and dangerous new variants. Get the latest facts by speaking to your pediatrician or healthcare provider or by visiting getvaccineanswers.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the American Academy of Pediatrics. You want to give your baby everything, so start with a safe sleep area. Babies younger than one should always be placed to sleep on their backs on a firm and flat surface like a safety-approved crib. And keep blankets, pillows, and other soft or loose items out of the crib when the baby is in it. Learn more about Safe Sleep for Babies at safetosleep.nichd.nih.gov. Sponsored by the Eunice Kennedy Shriver National Institute of Child Health and Human Development. Listen to this podcast now on the Red Apple Podcast Network. Father and Son with Curtis and Anthony Sliwa. This is Curtis Sliwa for the super spectacular podcast. It's called Father and Son. Features yours truly, Curtis Sliwa, and my son, who actually interns here, Anthony, who's 17 years old, wants to shake me down for a brand new Dodge Charger. And I told him instead, go out and get a paper out, kid. Download all of Red Apple Media's podcasts right now through your favorite podcast platform. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking to Dr. Arthur Laffer, Chairman and Chief Economist of Laffer Associates, Presidential Medal of Freedom recipient, father of supply-side economics, and the Laffer Curve. Speaking of the Laffer Curve, so... The headline on the Tax Foundation website, Biden budget would raise income tax rate to highest in the developed world. That's a wonderful thing. And we're also, as an adjunct to that, record federal tax collections. I mean, revenues are pouring in because of inflation and because of the rebound from the pandemic. And also, Arthur, one thing that people don't ever talk about anymore Despite Biden's best efforts, the Trump tax cuts are still in place. It's really probably the only, uh, you know, stimulative measure in economic policy. I mean, try as they as they did, they couldn't overturn the corporate tax hike or the cap gains or the personal income tax cuts. So, Art, um, 
What would happen if Biden got his way? And then we well, let me just say, Larry, it's because world. of you and Steve Boer and some others that they were unable to overturn the, the Trump tax cuts. And uh, we all thank you just profusely for what you did there. Well, uh, when and you Joe look Manchin, at the, don't forget you Joe look at why the revenues are so high. Uh, yeah. There are a lot of things, as you say, it's the Trump tax cuts, which paid for themselves right away. Uh, they paid for themselves in the first two years, and revenues were up substantially more than they had in the prior two years. Where, you know, So it's really paid for itself. It created a great economy. You can see that going on now. The inflation, as you say, is also true. We're pushing people into higher brackets and all that stuff, which is pretty awful. But the anticipation of Biden tax increases is also causing people to accelerate income into the present in order to not make that income when tax rates are much higher. It, it's a crazy world. And it reminds me of an old phrase that you want to protect life and limb. And sometimes you have to sacrifice a limb to protect life, <laughs> but never should you sacrifice a life to protect a limb. And the issue right now with Biden is they are sacrificing the life of the world economy, which is the U.S. They are putting us out to massive exposure uh, to problems here. And when we are the central nation of the world, and we are the one place that we can't allow to go fallow and not be the machine of prosperity in the future. You know, Art, people pulled income, I think, into the last quarter of last year. The GDP in the fourth quarter of 2021 was about 7%, and it looks like it's going to be about 1% in the first quarter. Exactly. So that argument, that model you have, looks like it's worked again. It really does. I mean, I do it personally. Uh, you know, when tax rates are prospectively rising, I'll, I'll, you know, I have a lot of control over my income with the firms that I work with. So I'll get prepaid three years worth of income, pay it on the taxes now, and then have no income when the tax rates go up. And mm -hmm. I'm not alone. There are lots of people. When do you decide to repair your machinery? You don't repair your machinery in, in, in uh, low tax years. You repair your machinery in high tax years when you can afford the loss of income and you want to get those deductions. And, you know, all of this works to change the timing of income. And people really are efficient at doing it. You're so right on that. Well, it's just, you know, it's just an interesting point, but that's what the data uh, are showing. I don't know how the 1% in the first quarter is going to be explained away, if you will, but that's one important factor that people don't talk about. Now, the other thing is, in terms of the Laffer curve, um, what would happen if Biden got the corporate rate back to 28%, if he raised the capital gains taxes, if he had these you know, confiscatory wealth taxes on unrealized gains, if he raised the personal income tax, all of that was in Build Back Better. All that is repeated in his budget, uh, 36 tax hikes, um, $2.5 trillion. What would that do? You think? Yeah, well, the legislative additions are really terrible that he's got there, and that would not only play the film backwards, it would really destroy America's limited prosperity that we have right now, but... What I want to make sure you, you and, the, and the listeners understand is the current inflation in the U.S., 10 or 12 percent or whatever it is, depending on which index you use, but the current inflation is leading to a huge increase in the effective tax rate on capital gains, mm -hmm. which is one of the most sensitive items in the income stream of high-income people. They can choose when to realize their gains and when not to. 
and it also affects the productivity of the country. So we already have in store enormous increases in the capital gains tax rate because of illusory gains that will be taxed at the ordinary and highest rates. We never indexed capital gains tax. Never did. And you know you tried that very hard in the White House. I supported you 100% on that. I think Mnuchin was even with us on that one, Larry. And um, (laughs) I don't mean to... I I wouldn't say cheerleaded. I mean, he's a great pal of mine. But when we we looked at it carefully, he was not opposed to it. He was never opposed to it. That's true. Trump loved um, it. Trump loved yeah, tr- it. Yeah, and it was so correct. And I don't the, know why we couldn't have done it with an executive order. I the, thought we could have, to be honest. Oh, God. We didn't. God help us from Treasury lawyers. That's That was the problem. Yeah, well, but, you know, probably hangovers from, uh, oh, well, God knows, probably hangovers from Karl Marx in 1387. <laughs> I mean, you Trump, know. It's, Trump, he, he, there are two things that Trump loved. One of them, mm-hmm. actually three things, but one of them was indexing capital gains. And the other one that I used to push is selling 100-year bonds at rock bottom interest rates, he yeah, loved well, it. The, he the loved other one it. you pushed very hard was the uh, was the waiver of the payroll tax. Yeah, yeah, I did. That was yours. Done a huge thing for this economy. Just no, huge. that was you. That was you. And well, Trump we both were to you. together on that. I mean, come on, it, you know, we it's a team. I have never found myself at odds with you in forty years working with you, Larry. <laughs> That's true. Uh, you've been one of my heroes, and you know, I just love working with you, and I love working for you, and I love working all over with you. It's we just. A great duo. But look at if you had these tax hikes, these are tax rate hikes that Biden is proposing. What would that do to tax revenues? It would lower it. It, it, But, you know, with the inflation coming in, the nominal revenues uh, might go up, but Mm -hmm. the real revenues will go way down. And what would that do to the economy? Are not rising like like these people say in the in the report. They just aren't. If you look at the stock market, you know, it's, oh, it's not. Stock market is declining at 10% per annum just because of inflation. Mm, no, right. No, right, and right, you know, right, that's not right. trivial. That's 33,500 points a year down. You know, that's 700 points down, a, 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 um, excuse me, that, you know, that's, what is it, 3, 300 points down a month? Right. I mean, that's a lot of drop, yeah, not to be included in the nominal numbers. So, you know, we're back to the 1970s where, where kids learn to do log tables just by looking at inflation and pricing in stores. Mm-hmm. And that What's is this a- inflation, Larry. I really I, I don't mean to push it so hard, but it is a deadly serious problem. Mm-hmm. And I don't see any signs of it reversing. And what I don't happened- think you do either, do you? No, I, I don't. You know, I... I look at these monthly reports. We just had a batch last week. I didn't see one iota of evidence that inflation is easing. But there's no reason for inflation to ease because neither the federal government's spending policies nor the Federal Reserve's money policies have changed. That's precisely correct. Nor have really oil policies changed. Right. That's another. I mean, and oil is a price driver. You know, it's you can change the price of oil with fairly modest changes in the supplies falling into the market. And even though the president has released all of this oil from the oil uh, uh, reserve, uh, it still hasn't made a massive impact on the price of oil. It's well over a hundred bucks a barrel. Yeah, it snapped back to about one hundred and seven dollars a barrel this week. Exactly. With, I mean, you know, with... and they're talking about now doing new drilling in Anwar or whatever it is up in Alaska. You know how long it takes to give those permits out 
uh, to have them go out and find the oil, then drill for it, then get the oil out, and then sell that oil. It takes a long time. This is not something that's going to affect the price of oil right away. Arthur Laffer, the best of the best. Seriously, the best Thank of the you. best. Well, I'm sorry I'm not going to be on your show on Monday, Larry. Right. I really wish I could be there. We'll miss you. We'll miss you. Folks, we're going to take a quick break and come back on the other side and talk about Elon Musk with Charles Payne of Fox Business. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. So much more to do today. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And we're going to turn back to Elon Musk, who was championing free speech on social media platforms. He's going after Twitter. I think this is exactly what Musk should be doing. It's a big plus. I don't know if he can get down or not. That's why we have invited the great Charles Payne, my pal, my colleague, host of Fox Business' Making Money with Charles Payne. That's 2 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, every day, Monday through Friday. Charles is the CEO of Wall Street Strategies. In his most recent book, How to Build Unstoppable Prosperity. I'm for that. Unstoppable. Charles, thank you for doing this. It's a, it's a pleasure, Larry. Thank you. So, Charles, let's talk about this. Musk comes in. Uh, this, is a, this is a very noble effort by his, on his part, if you ask me. My question to you is, first of all, is a free speech platform on social media, is that a good business model? And second of all, how do you read this? Uh, now Twitter is uh, taking uh, defensive uh, actions, they're putting up a poison pill. They're trying to stop the guy. What do you think about this story? Well, first on the free speech part, you know, I did a lot of work on this and, um, you know, listen, I, I, I've been stuck in Twitter stock for a, a few years. <laughs> so, you know, uh, <laughs> right. A lot of people have opinions on it. Um, I'm stuck in it. So, you know, and, and I go back and, and it's really amazing if you look at this, uh, the growth they had, the stock market, the uh, the user, uh, daily average users and all that kind of stuff. The day Donald Trump was inaugurated, Twitter shares are trading at $16 a share. That quarter that he left, uh, they reported their numbers. They were amazing. The first day uh, of their earnings report, that was February 1st. He had been out of office for a week. Uh, the stock was up 13%. A week later, it was up 24%. It got up to $77 a share by March 1st. And essentially, it's been downhill since then. And I think that Twitter really started to confuse, like, you know, anybody, like a lot of folks who invest in the market and without doing their work or, you know, it started confusing luck with skill. And they thought maybe we can get this guy off the platform. And, and since then, of course, they've, they've doubled, tripled, quadrupled down with this nonsense, uh, you know, getting people off the platform, shadow banning them. I was banned for like 10 or 11 days and never given an explanation. Hmm. So I know the free speech model works. We know the social media platform model works, but it's got to create engagement. This year, this year, TikTok will do $11 billion in ad revenue. Hmm. That will be more than Twitter and Snapchat combined. So there's a way to monetize this. There's a way to, to make money off of it. And yeah, it's engagement. It's free speech. Let people get on there and, and communicate with each other. That's what the platform is supposed to be. You know, I don't even want any of these algorithms to determine 
posts that are, quote, right or, quote, wrong. I'm not interested in that. I think everybody, you know, we post, you decide. People should be able to be free. And the users of Twitter, I don't know, what, 250 million, whatever the number is, let them decide. I don't want anybody to gin up any reasons not to post. Now, there are strict limits on decency, okay, child sex, that kind of thing. That's from the 1996 Telecoms Act, uh, the so-called Decency Act. But other than that, Charles, when you get into the realm of politics, you know, you get into the realm of, let's say, COVID and masking and arguments, you know, for and against all that stuff. I don't want them to decide. That's not Twitter's job. They're a, they're a social media platform. You, know, you post, I, I, we decide. Yeah, no, I, I agree. You know, a few years ago, three years ago, uh, I was uh, invited to a, a dinner. Uh, it's about a dozen folks, dozen so-called conservatives. Uh, not everybody was with uh, Jack Dorsey. And I guess I impressed him a lot because he uh, requested that I have lunch with him, just him, him and I. And we've been, we were communicating pretty strongly. And, you know, he admitted almost everything that we complained about. He admitted to that. And then, so he was saying, you know, well, what can I do? I said, well, you know, listen, first and foremost, you need to maybe open up an office in Alabama. <laughs> because you can't have a bunch of guys in Silicon Valley dictating what's right and wrong, right? Uh, based on their their own echo chamber. Uh, you know, I told him I hate opening up my Twitter account, and I'm all all of us all the time. I've got these things, that, these trending things, and stuff that I'm not interested in. You know, and it's the same liberals whining about the same things. I'm like, hell, you know, you guys have a, you, you should know. I, I don't care about this. Why is this trending? It's not trending for me. And and so it gets back to your point. They've taken on roles that they shouldn't have taken on in the first place. They've let their own political ideology supersede the fact that I think, A, it's a business. B, if it's supposed to be the public square, allow it to be the public square. That's it. That's exactly right. I totally agree with that. And also, Charles, from a business standpoint, it's not working for them. I mean, I I went back and looked at the stock. The stock is way down before Elon, uh, Elon came in with his bid. But the point is, it's not working, and no, they need to make a big change. So that's why I think Musk is right. Now, the question is, can Musk beat this poison pill? I think Musk could beat the poison pill. In fact, you know, the poison pill is it's sort of – it's poison for everyone. It's designed to dilute the stock, right? So, if you know, and, and the way it works is as you start to get over 15 percent, uh, more stock is available at a cheaper price to existing shareholders. Uh, you know, but it dilutes the whole pie. It's, it really is almost a kamikaze kind of thing. Like, we'd rather burn this whole thing down than let Elon Musk take it. I think it was a huge mistake on the part of, 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 of Twitter's management once again. Uh, it showed that they're not seriously entertaining his offer. Uh, you know, you haven't seen a, a lot of companies use poison pills in the last decade, uh, you know, because it's not just poison to potentially um, Elon Musk, but every single person who currently owns a stock. And what they would have to explain to everyone is the stock went up 50 percent after he got involved. Uh, If he walks away, it's going to go down. It'll go way under 30. This will be in the 20s. Easy. Mm. Uh, Listen, they're they're investment banker. They uh, Elon Musk has Morgan Stanley helping him, advising him. So Twitter hired Goldman Sachs. The most embarrassing thing about that 
is in December, Goldman Sachs lowered their rating on Twitter to a sell with a target of 30. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't know that. I did not know that. Oh, that's fabulous. Well, Morgan Stanley's smart, but you've got, there's some pretty big investors. You've got Paul Singer at Elliott Management. You've got Kathy Woods at ARC. I think they're going to side with Musk in this. So Friday, uh, Kathy Wood, Thursdays, Kathy Wood came out with a new target on Tesla, $4,600, a $5 trillion market cap by 2026. And the reason that's important, you know, of course, CNBC went on the attack uh, as soon as this came out. So did all the other folks. But, you know, they, they were trying to use economic logic or business logic. Uh, it was really all illogical, but pretty transparent. And before the day was over, you can start to see the shift in the, 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 the reason why Musk shouldn't go after this is that there could be retaliation against Tesla. You know, liberals should stop buying Tesla. So I thought it was important that she put that out there. Like she kind of, you know, kind of indirectly poo-pooed that mm-hmm. by saying, no, nah, this is going to be a $4,600 stock and just another four years, a $5 trillion market cap. Um, so there's some big people in there. Uh, there's talk of this guy, uh, uh, Thomas Bravo, coming in. Mm. You know, I, I, I happen to like, uh, you know, the, the the story. I've been trying to get him on my show for about six months. Mm. Um, I'm not sure where he leans politically, uh, but he's a very smart guy, you know, private equity guy. You know, the, here's the thing, and this is the, really what it comes down to. If we had waken up to news at a private equity firm, you can name it, you could, whatever firm you want, offered Twitter $54.20 for their shares. It would be big positive news. It would have been Mm -hmm. the biggest positive news story on financial TV and across Mm -hmm. the media world. Mm -hmm. Instead, it's Elon Musk. And they are afraid Elon Musk is going to take it to its roots, which is, you know what, what we thought it would be. And that is, again, the public square. They are so deathly afraid of him letting Donald Trump. This is all, this is really, if we're going to be honest about it, a Donald Trump Trump story more than anything else. (laughs) It really is. is. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. So is this a shot across the bow to Facebook, to Google, YouTube, that kind of thing? These guys, the hegemony may be over. Other investors may go after them for the same reason that Elon's going after Twitter. It is in a, to a degree, but I, I think they also have their own issues in terms of, okay, once we grow this platform, how do we monetize it? Uh, of course, they're all still in the crosshairs of regulators on both sides of the Atlantic. Uh, you know, uh, So they, they, they already have their issues. Their stock has been stuck, particularly Facebook. You know, That whole metaverse thing with Facebook uh, was, was a Hail Mary. They, they really should have done it two or three years earlier. They shouldn't have announced it. You know, when they did it and the way they did it was so was so flamboyant that, uh, you know, everybody else was like me, too. I'm a, I'm a metaverse. You know, they should have – Mark Zuckerberg probably should have been doing that three or four years earlier. But he did see that, hey, once you get past organic growth with this stuff, how do you monetize it? Hmm. Charles Payne, host of Fox Business, making money with Charles Payne. My pal, my colleague. Thank you, Charles. We appreciate it, buddy. You got it. Talk to you next week. Folks, hang out. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. Up next is Congressman Lee Zeldin, who is running for governor of New York State. And I'll tell you, after this Brooklyn subway horrific attack, once again, there has got to be a complete overhaul of New York state and city politics. We are sinking fast and we are going to have to do something about it. And we'll listen to what Lee Zeldin has to say. We'll be right back after this quick message. 
Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We are bringing in Lee Zeldin, who's a congressional member from Long Island. He's a candidate, Republican candidate for governor. And uh, Lee, look, at you were on last week. Uh, I don't care. I'll have you on every week. This state has to be blown up. The political structure has to be completely changed if we're ever going to recover from any of the things going on on crime and taxes and the economy. I'm giving you open field running, my friend. And my first question is, in the wake of Tuesday's mass shooting in the Brooklyn subway, is a horrific development. What has changed? What is Hochul doing? What is anybody doing to make New York safer? The worst part is what they aren't doing. And what needs to happen with uh, law enforcement is that we should have their backs. Uh, And the progress of the defund the police agenda, it's not just about funding. There were other priorities that they've been able to advance over the last few years. New York State has a cashless bail law in place that is contributing to all sorts of additional criminality, I believe, that we should repeal cashless bail. We should give judges discretion to weigh dangerousness, flight risk, past criminal record, seriousness of the offense, when deciding how to set bail on all offenses. I believe that district attorneys like Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan district attorney, should be fired for refusing to enforce the law. The governor of the state of New York has the constitutional authority to fire DAs who refuse to enforce the law. We should pass a law enforcement bill of rights up in Albany, recognize their inherent right of self-defense. I picked a a deputy inspector, commanding officer of the 70th Precinct, Allison Esposito, as my running mate, and she's going to be a great lieutenant governor come January. Kathy Hochul, she picked Brian Benjamin. Mm. Now, you could put aside all the criminality. He wasn't just an advocate of the defund the police agenda in Albany. He was the champion of it. And that alone should have disqualified him. But anyway, Kathy Hochul decides uh, that she's going to pick him because she's worried about a primary. She's worried about her left flank. And, uh, you know, that's before even getting into all the corruption, bribery, fraud stuff that uh, is now getting him arrested and indicted. Well, the point is, I mean, one point is what Hochul has done nothing. I would have thought after a catastrophe like the Brooklyn subway shootings. There would be really, Lee Zeldin, dramatic action by both the mayor, but especially the governor. Governor is a powerful governor. It's a powerful legislature. But I don't see dramatic action. So New Yorkers kind of scratch their head. And what they'll do is they'll stay out of the subway. They'll render the subway useless. The subway is vital arteries for New York City and New York State. That's the point I make. What, where's the change Yeah, and by the way, it's not just about staying outside of the subways or staying off the streets. They're leaving the state. As you and I have Mm -hmm. discussed, people are leaving New York in record numbers, more than any other state in the entire country. Uh, What the governor should be doing is saying that uh, our streets have been turned over to criminals. We need to turn them back over to law-abiding citizens. This is how to do it. You know, district attorneys like Alvin Bragg are fired. we should right. repeal cashless bail. Uh, we should. I mean, they enacted the less the less is more act, where they're uh, releasing people early from prison who should remain behind bars. When Kathy Hochul signed that many months ago, when she first came into office, she released 191 people from Rikers Island, and a whole bunch of them immediately within days, within the first couple of weeks, they they went out and got rearrested. 
Uh, and now they're, they're talking about going even further up in Albany. Uh, so that left flank isn't just uh, sitting up in the peanut gallery with limited power. You have a supermajority in the Assembly and Senate, outsized power of self-described socialists, mm. and they feel like we're not going far enough. Yeah, absolutely. So our good friend John Katsimatidis has been saying there are 3,000 people out there with serious criminal records, and they're out there on the streets, and he feels that they should all be swept off the streets and put behind bars. And I don't know if the numbers are exactly right, but the principle of what John Katsimatidis is saying to me sounds like a good idea. And, and Lee, it, it may sound radical, but I think we need radical measures to make New York safe. Yeah, and, but by the way, and radical and also common sense. And also yeah. obvious solutions. Our rule of law is the foundation. It's the backbone of the city, of the state, of our nation uh, here in New York that's being deliberately ignored. Yet people who are out there who have committed crimes, they owe a debt to society. They should account. There, There is a punishment aspect of the criminal justice system. There's a deterrent aspect of it as well. And there's also two scales of it. I mean, people see others getting away scot-free and then someone else is hauled into court because they made a right-hand turn on, on red. You know, if you're going to have these laws on the books in Albany, th then if you're a prosecutor, you're a law enforcement, you should have all the tools and resources you need to enforce those laws. Uh, unfortunately, and by the way, if you want to change one of the laws, maybe you're, you know, Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg, go take your case up to Albany. But you can't just say across the board all, all sorts of crimes you're not going to enforce and other crimes you're going to downgrade on your own. You're the prosecutor. If you want to go be a defense attorney, that's not what DA stands for in the role that he signed up for. If you want to go be a defense attorney, go be a defense attorney. But there are a whole lot of New Yorkers who are relying on you to actually do your job. And there are people who don't live in New York who are saying, you know what, maybe I'm not going to take that trip to New York. There are businesses that are saying, maybe we're not going to stay here. We're going to move our presence elsewhere. There are other businesses. I mean, Amazon was going to come in the Queens. They saw the way that AOC and her friends kept 25,000 good-paying jobs out. But there are other businesses that were watching that saying, why would we want to go to New York? We might get treated the same way or, or worse, so it's not worth it. There's so many secondary impacts when you don't have safe streets and it's only contributing to an exodus. You can't, you can't bring New York back to its glory if you're going to ignore this issue. And, and actually what's worse up in Albany is that they keep passing new laws that make crime increase, that are protecting the criminals as if that's the first priority constituency over law-abiding New Yorkers. You know, Lee Zeldin, I say every night on the TV show that the cavalry is coming, meaning the Republicans are going to take over the House and Senate. We need a cavalry in New York State, and I'm appointing you the leader of the cavalry. Sign I'm me up. Yeah, I mean, and and if you're game, I want to have you on again and again. I want to set up an alternative government here. This political structure, these Democrats, left-wing, socialist-leaning, no uh, law and order. This has to change. This is New York's last chance. If this Amen. election, you know, we, you, you're the guy, and I'm just going to, you know, I, I throw, I, I'm partisan here, okay? I'm partisan. But to use your phrase, I think it's common sense. We need to sweep out 
all these crazy Democrats that have been running this place into the ground. Anyway, Lee Zeldin, we're going to talk to you again and again if you're game. Look forward to it. All right, buddy. Take care. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. I've made my statement. I've lost patience. We need to sweep Albany clean, period, full stop, end of sentence. I'll be back after this to talk to Senator Kevin Kramer. Hi, it's Lou Dobbs for Priority Gold, America's precious metals dealer. These are volatile times with high inflation, soaring debt, wars on multiple continents, and rising financial stress. Central banks are buying gold to diversify their reserves, so are many Americans. Call Priority Gold and find out how precious metals can help you diversify your portfolio. They're highly rated and happy to help. Call 1-866-303-6357 or get a free gold guide at PriorityGoldGuide.com. That's Priority PriorityGoldGuide.com. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. By the way, you can live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. LarryKudlowShow.com on the Internet. And we run all across the country. Actually, the, our live streaming ratings are very quite good also. So um, We've got Senator Kevin Kramer, great friend, Republican of North Dakota, member of the Armed Services Committee. Senator Kramer, first of all, happy and holy Easter, sir. Happy and holy Easter to you, Larry, and, and happy Passover to, to those that celebrate that great holiday that, of course, is directly related um, to the Easter Easter holiday. And having the two fall on the same day and the same weekend, I think, is pretty special. It is very special. It's a great point. Very special. Um, sir, I want to talk to you about a couple of things, Ukraine and energy policy. Let me start us off on the Ukraine. Um, there's a was a story out so that Ukrainians sunk this big uh, Russian battleship, whatever it is, the Moskva, Moskva, whatever it is, uh, which was a heck of a thing. But yeah. then there was some talk in the press and not confirmed, but there's a headline story uh Ukrainian experts worry sunken Russian warship was carrying nukes. Sunken Russian warship Moskva, which was destroyed by a Ukrainian missile strike, may have been carrying nukes when it went down, some experts warned Friday. Now, that is not confirmed by U.S. intelligence, Mm -hmm. but I just wondered if you had any thoughts on it. Well, I have a lot of thoughts on on the possibility, Larry, because one of the things that I think a lot of I think a lot of people have a basic understanding of the fact that um, since World War II, you know, the START treaties and the New START treaties that that involved the large land-based, you know, nuclear missiles, and of course the the other parts of the triad, the submarines and and uh, bombers, that that, that that there's been a, you know agreements made, right? And we have a pretty good accounting of of, of large nuclear weapons. The problem is there's a very different doctrine with regard to nuclear weapons in Russia versus the United States. Russia has something like a couple of thousand of these small, more smallish nuclear missiles that are more what they consider part of their of their traditional, if you will, um, weapon systems. Um, and so, you know, we have like 200. They have 2,000. They are not part of their START treaty. It, it's, again, part of their conventional weapon system doctrine. And that's a very different thing, Larry. We have to always keep that in mind. I don't know whether whether this boat would have been carrying those or not. Um, at this point, nothing would surprise me about Vladimir Putin. He do, does appear to be a very desperate, isolated dictator uh, that's uh, 
got his back up against the wall, if you will, and his personal pride in, on the global stage is on the line. So, um, but I would think that before long, investigators will be able to determine whether or not uh, you know such a weapon was on that that sunken ship. All right. Well, it's a, potentially a very big story. Um, yes. well, let's the latest round of weapon sales to Ukraine. The Bidens are they're gradually getting to where they should be, but I'm not an expert on this. How do you read it? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, uh, everything that Joe Biden has done that's right, he's done very late. And it's, it's, it's always done after a lot of pressures applied, oftentimes by a bipartisan uh, you know, Congress. Many Democrats, in the, at least in the Senate that I know, are, you know, are wishing that Joe Biden would step it up a, a, a bit and f- would have from the beginning, including, you know, uh, Pre, pre-invasion sanctions, for example. Remember, it goes all the way back to that, where he didn't want to do sanctions before the before the invasion. He wanted to wait till there's invasion to shut down Nord Stream 2. And same has been true of, of the various weapon systems and, and the more advanced systems that they've been asking for. Uh, it, it seems it takes Democrats and Republicans to apply that pressure before he actually does it. And I don't want to oversimplify his job as Commander-in-Chief Larry, but it doesn't take a, you know, it doesn't take a, a four-star general with a whole bunch of three stars advising them to realize that this is a war that Ukraine can win, um, but we need to have a commitment to helping Ukraine win that war. And that is, those are words you don't hear coming from even the highest ranking military officials in the, the Biden administration. It's almost as though they had a predetermined outcome of, of a loss for Ukraine and we would do a, just enough to look like we're helping. Um, we need to get all in in terms of providing the systems that they need, that they say that they need, that we're able to provide them. And at the, at the same time, Larry, and, and his budget certainly does not reflect this, we need to be restocking our own weapon systems mm-hmm. and be prepared um, for, you know, for, for whatever might come, preferably, prepare for peace uh, and you can't do that from a position of weakness you know um, the Russian chess master former Russian chess master Gary Kasparov and human rights advocate who's tangled with Putin in Russia he lives in the US now he said on, on the, my Fox business show about two weeks ago if Ukraine wins Putin's gone if Ukraine wins Putin gone one way or the other, he'll be thrown out. And it seems to me it would be a good thing if we had a clear statement from President Biden that we want Ukraine to win. We want them to boot out all of the Russian troops. I don't know what they're waiting for. So, Larry, this is one of the things that confounds me and I think a lot of observers and a lot of Americans. Why Why is it so difficult to say that? I mean, why would we be helping fund... Um, Ukrainian military? Why would we be so engaged with NATO? And and why would we be putting sanctions on Russia if our goal isn't for Ukraine to win this war? I mean, in many respects, you don't get the luxury of helping one side win and then being neutral. It it makes zero sense diplomatically. I don't see how you get anything out of that. So, but, but, you know, confounding statements are kind of the norm with this White House, Mm. obviously. Every day, you know, you hear another thing coming from the White House and you scratch your head and you go, what what was that? You know, so I don't know if we're expecting too much when we expect a clear message from Joe Biden. Yeah, that's just, it's such a vexing problem. And the the other part of this, Senator Kramer, is that, um, a Ukrainian victory, and if Putin is overthrown in Moscow and so forth, 
But it seems to me that would send a tremendous tough signal to uh, Chinese President Xi. I mean, we have to be we have to be aware and sensitive that that this battle in Ukraine will have a major impact on what Xi does, what he thinks he can do with respect to Taiwan, and also, you know, with respect to American territories in the Pacific and so forth. So again, it, it seems to me all of Biden's focus of foreign policy right now should be a Ukrainian victory. There's no question, Larry. Everything you state is exactly on point, and it is why, in many respects, Joe Biden's getting sort of lucky in the fact that the Ukrainians themselves are able to hold Putin at bay and, and even fight back in pretty enormous ways and perhaps even be positioned to win this war. And, and, and all of that has already sent a pretty strong message, I think, to President Xi and, and, and as well as to our allies in the Pacific, and including Taiwan, where where the unthinkable is actually happening. And so that's that's going to have an impact. But so much more would the impact be if our president spoke, you know, specifically, deliberately and strongly about a Ukrainian victory and does everything we can to help that occur. That would give a great sense of comfort to our allies, Taiwan and others in the South Pacific, and, and equally a strong message to our adversary, uh, Xi Jinping. And, and I just... Again, I don't know what he's waiting for. Um, it, it, part part of me worries that he doesn't actually have the same conviction. Um, Larry, I, I, I actually I look at his budget. I look at his his energy policy. I look at it, Build Back Better, and I look at their their coziness, not just coziness, but their large strain of of socialism that runs through the Democratic Party. And I sort of wonder who they sympathize with mm-hmm. in, in many respects. It sounds awful, thing, like an awful thing to say, but uh, I don't know how. How you can you can take it you know any other way his absolute lack of conviction about the values that are that are American values versus these more socialist values we're talking to Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota who is a member of the Senate Armed Services Committee Senator how do you read now the the battleground itself uh, it looks like a, a big fight is brewing in eastern Ukraine Donbass region but also, I'm reading reports now that um, the Russians have resumed bombing of Kiev. How do you read this um, situation? So it certainly appears to me like um, Vladimir Putin is he, he continues to sort of play like he's interested in diplomacy, at least mildly interested. At the same time, his actions don't, you know, provide any evidence to support that. Uh, th- there was the, you know, the talk of repositioning troops away from Kiev. And um, there was even some early indication that might be the case, and yet we don't really see that happening. Um, I don't think there's any question that that he's still looking for the best strategy to take the government. In other words, it's one thing to go get Bombas and, 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 and some of the other eastern Ukraine, some of the other key areas that, that he, he obviously wants. Um, but I think at the end of the day, he wants the government, um, and the only way to get the government is to get Kiev. And, and I think we have to proceed along those lines. You know, every every talk is important to have. Um, you know, if there's if there's a, a an opportunity um, for a ceasefire of some sort, that's fine. But um, we got to enter into it. But make no mistake, I think Vladimir Putin has determined his desired outcome, and I'm not sure he's willing to settle for anything less than that at this point. And Senator, if you'd be kind enough, I got to take a quick commercial break. On the other side. I want to talk to you about energy policy, 
Uh, Biden has announced some additional lease sales on federal lands. We want to talk about that. And I might add, despite the Strategic Petroleum Reserve announcement, the oil price is back to $107 a barrel. Uh, You're sitting there in the Bakken area. So we'll be right back, folks. We have Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're here with Senator Kevin Kramer of North Dakota, a member of the Armed Services Committee. And North Dakota is home to the Bakken Reservoir, I'm going to call it, the Bakken Reservoir. So, Senator Kramer, President Biden announces lease sales, federal lands, lease sales on federal lands. He's going to resume them, but he's reducing the acreage. He's going to raise the royalties. I want. I want to say. No, we can't do this straight. I, I, I want to just. I want to just add uh, to that. Uh, oil prices. West Texas is one hundred six fifty four. So the Spro uh, sale thing hasn't worked out. Brent crude is one eleven seventy, and also here's one that doesn't get enough attention. Natural gas prices now seven dollars and thirty two cents. That mm-hmm. is a big number. Yes, that it number is. was. That number was close to $4, uh, I don't know, six weeks ago. So what do you make? Has Biden had a change of heart on energy policy? You know, uh, no. <laughs> what I think Biden has done is he's, figured, he's trying to figure out the politics of it. So on the one hand, he wants to continually, you know, play to, to as I like to call her, Speaker AOC and Prime Minister Bernie Sanders rhetoric. <laughs> and on the other hand, he wants to say we need to, you know, we need to produce more American energy. And so he, he creates one incentive and then throws in two disincentives in the same action. And it, just take the leases as an example, Larry. I mean, he, he, remember he used that crazy term, there's 9,000 leases not yes. being used. You know, that represents, I don't know, a, a, really a small percentage of all of the leases. Doesn't recognize that 2,200 of those leases are currently in litigation by liberal NGOs, non-government organizations, that, that, that don't want any drilling. Uh, he's done nothing about that. Uh, never mind that he's more than doubled now the days it takes to, for an application for a permit to drill on federal land to actually become a permit to drill on federal land. And then you throw in, you, you rightfully, of course, the, the changing in the, the royalties. Um, you, you, you just you can't make it up. He creates all the wrong incentives, um, and, and, and frankly, at the same time, he goes to despots in places like Venezuela and Iran, or, you know, Venezuela and uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia and other places, Iran, uh, even to, to you know find more oil or get them to produce more oil. Russia, obviously, we've we've pretty well shut them off when it comes to oil to the United States of America. However. Um, I think my friend Pat Toomey, chairman of the banking committee that I serve on, has a great piece in the, in the Wall Street Journal where he says we need secondary sanctions. And what that means is that we need to make sure that they can't sell their oil anywhere because as long as they can go through a smaller bank that's not being sanctioned by the United States, sell to another country that will buy it in, you know, using rubles or some, some other currency uh, that's not under the, the uh, direct sanctions – they're still able to fund their war machine and, and get their oil out. So 
it's all bad. None of it has a good outcome. And uh, the best thing he can do is, is you know, get back to it. You, you know, when you, when, you, when you and I were working on this stuff, when you were in the White House, it, remember, oil went, it went negative. It, it mm-hmm. wasn't very long ago. It went negative. The, the right incentives and the right messages, the right signals to the markets can create a much more balancing point. You just listed, for example, what I think was about a $5 difference between WTI and Brent. For, for people that may not know what that means, Prior to us raising or lifting the export ban, you may not, you know, in 2015, you still could not export oil in the United States. While we were overproducing much more than we needed here, we were still not able to to uh, export. Once we got that done and that ban was lifted, you went from about a $30 difference between the international price, Brent, and WTI, to now what is a $5, and most of the time, Larry, it's within about $3. Mm-hmm. What that is, is that's the United States and our production bringing price down and and being the price maker instead of the price taker. There's so many ramifications to this policy, this policy uh, not to mention we produce it cleaner than most. I mean, the sense I get, Senator Kramer, is that any steps that Biden is taking now uh, to loosen up energy policy are really just temporary. That right. actually his, I think their vision, remember we had this thing that they're going to have a working group with the U.S. and NATO to figure out how to get more LNG exports into Europe and so forth. But really right. when you read when you read that thing, what they're actually saying is they believe the solution is going to be more renewables, wind and solar, not more fossils. And I don't think they've changed that view at all. Anything he's doing here, like this slight opening up of lease sales with higher royalties and so forth, I think it's just temporary. They're not really turning the spigot back on. Well, and as you know, Larry, you know, people with a lot of money that are successful in business don't make investments on temporary returns. Right. And this is the problem, the lack of understanding of how a basic economy, especially an industrialized economy, where, where it takes a lot of capital to get started. And, yes, you can make a lot of money, but you don't make it overnight. Um, you have to ride the waves of a, of a commodity economy where the, where the prices go up and down, and that takes a long time. And why wouldn't you want to? So, no, I think you're exactly right. And investors know the difference between a short-term deal and a and long-term certainty, and that's reflected in his rhetoric. It's reflected in his many regulations. I mean, my goodness, he just you know he just did an SEC rule, um, you know, to, to to require climate disclosures by every company that's that's publicly traded. Um, they just had a, a, a meeting of the. Uh, of the various agencies related to this 30 by 30, this crazy idea that, that uh, one day the federal government could have some control over 30% of the, the land in the United States of America. They just met the other day to discuss the next steps uh, on that. And every every agency from the USDA to the Department of Interior uh, to the De- National, to the Department of Defense. I mean, last week we had a hearing in Armed Services Committee on uh, that included, of course, uh, G- General Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and, and Lloyd Austin, Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense Austin used the word climate change five times in his prepared remarks. Five times. 
we're, we're, we're looking, staring at the possibility of a World War III, uh, looking at an opportunity that's opened up as a result of that, sell more of our clean natural gas to our allies in Europe, making them less dependent on Vladimir Putin, making, you know, weakening Vladimir Putin's position, and, 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 uh, and we're trying to fund enough and provide enough weapons systems from, for Ukraine to win this war, and yet... Uh, in the middle of all of that, he does an opening statement that involves the word climate change five times. Mm-hmm. So there is a different doctrine with these people. So they, sp- they, you know, they sprinkle in just enough of what, you know, what is needed in hopes that somehow that will satisfy the electorate while they continue on this, this other trajectory. Remember, it wasn't that long ago down, down at, um, in Houston when John Kerry said all oh, those – couple of million Ukrainian uh, war refugees, that's no big deal. Just wait till you see the 100 million climate refugees. That, uh, that's the big deal. Keep your eye on the ball, guys. You know, this guy, these people are really, really out of touch, Larry. Yes. You know, Rick Perry has said a couple times on this LNG export, mm. you know, if you turn the spigots full on, and we're exporting like crazy to places like India and China, yeah. our clean burning LNG would replace very dirty burning coal in India and China. Uh, Of course, it would help our balance of payments, but it would reduce world carbon emissions. So LNG production would actually be pro-Green New Deal, if you will, be pro-lower carbon. But they don't seem to have the brains to understand that. I think they, if they do, and there are some who have the, the brains to understand it, the problem is they don't dare speak out because um, AOC and, and her Green New Deal crowd, who control so much of the uh, the Democratic Party today, will just pound them into in, into the ground. It's really a remarkable thing. So I, I know enough Democratic senators and members of Congress to understand exactly what you're saying, and this is applicable to lots of things, including, by the way, the, you know, how about how about uranium and how, how about nuclear, the, the cleanest and most reliable form of electric generation in the world. And you've got even our, our allies in places like Germany that they're shutting down all their, their nuclear plants, and we've acquiesced our uranium production to other countries. This is why, how about the other day when the president announced um, his desire to, you know, the, his plan to bring more mining of the critical minerals necessary for the clean energy revolution, and, and, and guess, guess who hates um, hates mining as much as they hate oil and gas and coal. The same people that want the minerals to create this, quote, clean energy. They, they have no concept, or at least not an admission, of the reality of, of uh, and complexity. Yeah, of they won't. No, they don't want us to dig for it. We have them. No. They just don't want us to dig for them. Absolutely. Can I ask you one other thing here? Um, you mentioned earlier Iran and the Armed Services Committee discussions and so forth. Where is this crazy business of the Iranian nuclear talks going. I mean, it was hot for a while. Now I see it's a little bit colder, but I don't know. They're doing it all behind closed doors. Russia is helping us to negotiate. What can you tell us, um, you know, that's not classified, but what can you tell us about the Iranian talks? So, great point. I do think you're right. It's been hot. It's been cold. A lot of it's been happening behind the scenes. I, I suspect on purpose. Many of the things that we come up with, we come up with from sources that we're not necessarily supposed to, you know, hear from or hear about. And so the 
you know, those of us on the committee, as well as Intelligence Committee and the Foreign Relations Committee, continue to keep the pressure on to just dump this whole deal. Every indication is they're going exactly the wrong direction mm. and would empower Iran, which is just might be the dumbest idea yet, except that there'll be another one any minute. Senator Kevin Kramer, thank you, sir. Happy and holy Easter. We appreciate it very much. Folks, we're going to take a quick break. On the other side of the break, we're going to do some stock market work. I'm Larry Kudlow. Please stick around. It's the Larry Kudlow Show. Free market prosperity starts here. Now, here's Larry Kudlow. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is the Larry Kudlow Show. And please join us during the week. Fox Business, name of the show is Kudlow, 4 to 5 p.m., Monday through Friday. Monday, we're going to have a special tax day special. Yeah, we can all celebrate our taxes. It's a wonderful thing. Anyway, we'll have an all-star cast. I hope you join us here. We got the LarryKudlowShow.com. You can go live stream us, LarryKudlowShow.com. And now we're going to do some stock market work. And we have Jack Perusian, founder and chief economist for UCX and chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. And we have Jim LeCamp, senior vice president of investments at Morgan Stanley, two old friends. Gentlemen, um, first of all, a happy and holy Easter. And I don't know if it's applicable, but Passover as well. You can throw in all that you want. I want to do a little work, just a moment, as we had... Um, some discussion of this earlier in the show uh, with Charles Payne. Uh, but I want to go back to Elon Musk and his noble quest to take over Twitter and create some free speech, a true free speech movement uh, on a social media platform. And um, I'll begin with Jack Perusian. Jack, can Elon win this battle? They got defensive poison pills. The Twitter people are quaking in their boots. They ought to be quaking in their boots because he'd probably throw all of them out. I don't know. I you know, find some, I have to find some nine-year-olds. You know, Larry, we just had this conversation yesterday with some friends. I'm wondering if he really wants Twitter or if he's just playing games here. Yeah, sometimes you start to see certain things. Uh, the fact that he put 420 in the bid. All right. Uh, you know, these are these were little jokes he used to play back in the old days. Remember when he talked about taking uh, t uh, his company private at four hundred and twenty dollars? These were all inside jokes that had to do with cannabis that had to do with him and his, uh, you know, Jack. rich friends doing what they do. Jack. No, they, they are. Jack, he Come wants on. it. He wants it. Jack. He, well, Trust me. He you wants know what? It. If, if he wants it, if he wants it, then, then he's he... going to end up he's going to end up getting a problem child. Because well, they're going to swallow a poison pill, they're going, to, they're going to take this thing down, and you're going to do, the people are going to bury that stock if that happens. Now, if he really is the white knight that some people think he is, and he's going to take that and turn it into the national free forum that all of us really want it to be, all right? If that's the real case, right? Then, then, then it's going to happen. They're going to have to do it because. If they if he pulls back on this, the stock's going to collapse. It's a terrible business model. They're losing customers left and right. And and Jim LeCamp, you know, help me out in this. I mean, Berusian just got off on a completely wrong foot. So we need to straighten this out for our <laughs> listeners. Okay. It, now it 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 may be a protracted battle or not. I don't know. I'm not smart enough. They got Morgan Stanley on one side, on on Elon's side. 
Goldman Sachs and, and and Charles Payne said, you know, Goldman Sachs late last year issued a sell on Twitter, which is, I think, hilarious. They're representing them in this battle. But I mean, Elon can raise the cash. I mean, if he takes this over, it's a revolution. That's the point. It's a free speech revolution. Who knows? Google, YouTube may be next. Um, whatever it's called, Facebook, Meta may be next. I mean, this is the most exciting thing. You know, I agree with you. Um, I think it's very exciting. Uh, it, it got to where we were almost having to throw in the towel on free speech. We, the, yes. the odds were were so terribly against us. And, uh, and, and now we have somebody who at least is calling attention to it. I've never understood why any business, I don't care what it is, I've never understood why any business would deliberately want to exclude 45% of their pop of their potential audience. I mean, it's, right. that's a bad business model. And Disney's uh, really veering towards that trap as well right now. And uh, look at the ratings at uh, some of these uh, cable news networks, uh, how they've really plummeted. And you just – America's too big of a country. You've got – way too many uh, potential customers, clients, uh, payers there, and you're going to deliberately not only uh, hack them off, uh, but deliberately exclude them. And, and, and you look at Twitter, you've got a whole bunch of bots on there. And mm. this has mm. become a thing that's been dominated by left-leaning journalists and bots and it's not, it's a, like you said, it's a terrible business model, but it could be a great business model if they rechanneled that, reopened it, and made it a free speech forum, which is sorely needed here in this country. Boy, Jim McCamp, this is your finest moment. I mean, you saved us <laughs> from the Berusian assault. It's absolutely your finest moment. And I want to say also, um, uh, this is a shot across the bow, not only for the other uh, left-wing social media companies, but I think this is a shot across the bow for all the woke CEOs out there, you mentioned Disney, which is a great example, but that's, you know, this all of a sudden conservative investors. Now, you know, Elon's a, not a, a true conservative. He's a, he's a libertarian, but that's fine. In this case, that's super fine. But you're going to see investors rebel. Why? Because woke CEOs and woke companies are bad for their businesses. That's the point, Jack Brugia. They're just bad. Disney is a perfect example, but there are lots of other examples. You know, I remember Delta Airlines uh, fighting the Georgia election law and losing the All-Star game in Atlanta, which, of course, caused you know hundreds of millions of dollars to the black businesses in Atlanta. That's what they accomplished on that one. So I think this is a terrific thing. Uh, and I'm going to give you one more opportunity to repent. And, uh, you know, this is Easter weekend <laughs> and try to resurrect yourself. Well, well, by the way, happy Easter to you on that note. And, yes. and uh, yeah, well, yes, I, I think that what we're seeing is the pendulum swinging hard. Uh, yes. You know, in fact, it's it's something that you're seeing in, in every boardroom because, you know, quite frankly, the discussions that are taking place today are different than they were two, three years ago. And, uh, you know, and, and three years ago, it was a question of, OK, what is our liability to this generation that is telling us that we're not woke? Today, the, the discussion is, you know what? I think that we have to go beyond this. And then I've heard these discussions taking place. And, and now it's getting to the point where the boardroom is getting divided. And we're seeing that. 
There see you see people, and it's just as divided as we see politics in today. It, it, it's it's very it's very strange. I've never seen this in all my times sitting on various boards. Yet we're seeing a division at these board levels. It used to be that those that were pushing this woke agenda were winning, but now again that pendulum is swinging. And what people are saying at those board meetings and, and at those – in those minutes, and they're, and they're putting them in the minutes, is that this is not good for business. Mm. It is not good for shareholders, and it is not good for the future of what we are trying to do for our vision and our mission statement. These are important things that are being said. Yes, they are. Well, let's go to the stock market directly now. I want to ask it. I want to go into the issue of interest rates and real interest rates. Jim LeCamp – is the bond market in, in a state of transition? The 10-year got back up to 280-something uh, this past week. As the Fed pulling back, no longer supporting bond prices, okay, so the Fed is, is going to be letting their bond holdings run off in their... They have belated, to. In, ...in their belated attempt, right, to, to, to deal with the inflation crisis. Um, what does this mean for the for market rates? I'm not interested in the Fed funds rate. I'm interested in the 10-year and the 30-year and also the 30-year mortgage rate, which has gone through 5%. Is this a transition to much higher rates? They, first of all, they have to let long rates go a little higher, even if uh, they're, they're doing some sort of reverse operation twist, because they do not want to aggressively hike into a flat or an inverted yield curve. So they got to let the 10-year, especially the 10-year, because, as you know, the two tens or the three-month tens or what everybody's going to be watching. Forget the five ten. They're not going to pay attention to that too much. Two tens and three-month tens. And, uh, yeah, we we started to invert a couple of weeks ago, and now now they've let them go higher. But the inflation numbers have have justified that. I mean, the inflation numbers have continued. I mean, we've had one or two misses, but for the most part, the trend has been substantially higher. I think you could see the 10-year go to 305 or so. Mm. And then I think you'll see it. Now, remember, that's where it topped out, topped out a few years ago. Uh, I, then I think you'll start to see it calm back down. I don't think we're looking at chronically higher rates. I don't think the economy can support a 10-year at 5%. Don't think that's going to happen. Uh, there's still no money velocity out there. Consumers' uh, savings rates have plunged. Uh, higher gas prices are taking – that takes money out of people's pockets. So uh, you are going to see uh, this calm down at some point, but not yet. Uh, probably not till maybe the fall. Jack Bruzen, in one minute before we take a break, what do you think about the tenure? Well, first of all, I think Jim LeCamp was spot on with his analysis. Uh, I do think that we see it move up towards 3%. Uh, and the other thing that we want to pay attention to is not only the, 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 the price, but the speed, the velocity at which it goes. That's what's scaring people. That's, what's, that's why we're starting to see a repricing in stocks. It's the velocity by which these interest rates are moving rather than where they're going. Well, you're both wrong because the tenure is going to three and a half or four minimum. You're going to have to have real rates, folks. To attract interest, you're going to have to have positive real rates. We're nowhere near that. I mean, I had Laffer on earlier in the show, and we talked about this. You're, you're running an 8 to 10% inflation rate or worse, and you're telling me people are going to want to buy 3% tenure? I don't see it. I mean, with the Fed, not in the U.S., but around the world, you're, you're, you're assuming you've got you're investors assuming around the world that 
that look at a 10-year at three and say, hey, uh, relative to where rates are in Germany or, or, or elsewhere, uh, the three-year on U.S. Treasuries, that 3, uh, 3% on U.S. Treasuries is a higher yield than the, what they're going to get in other yeah. government no, bonds. No, it's terrific. It's like minus six after inflation. All right, let me yeah. take a quick break. I'm going to take a quick <laughs> Jack Perusian founder and chief economist for UCX, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Group. Jim LeCamp, senior vice president at Morgan Stanley. We come back, I'm going to give Jack another shot at commodities. That's his specialty. And I don't know, adjusted for inflation, stock prices are actually going down much more than people think. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. Now, back to the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. We're talking stocks with Jack Perusian, founder and chief economist for UCX, chairman of the Global Smart Commodity Fund, and Jim LeCamp, senior vice president, investments at Morgan Stanley. Gentlemen, welcome back. So this is another point that Art Laffer made at the top of the show. This inflation is distorting stock prices. And just to take a look at this, the S&P 500 year to date is down 7.8%, call it 8. But the CPI for the first three months of the year is 11%. So actually, the loss in real terms is closing in on 20%. Right? Mm-hmm. So I'll start with you, Jack Perusian. I mean, people, this, you know, inflation distorts everything. It distorts real interest rates, but it also distorts stock prices. The market is actually in worse shape than it looks. That's the point I'm thinking about and yeah. wanted you to get a comment on. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely right. In fact, you know what Dr. Laffer taught us? Uh, inflation is a prosperity killer. It's one of the four prosperity killers. That's one boy. of the things I tell in my, in my speeches all of the time. Good uh, but, uh, but one of the things <laughs> that we want to pay real close attention to, especially in commodity world here, uh, is how prices look out in the future. You know, uh, what we're seeing, what we're experiencing, that shock, that 20% that you just said, um, has, been, has been the culmination of everything that has been taking place over the course of the last six months. What we see in the futures markets going out a year or two is a completely different story and, and basically verifies what, what we're, we were just hearing from Jim about a 3% tenure because, quite frankly, we're looking at disinflation coming our way. We're looking at crude oil that's down 15 to $20 lower two years from now than it is right now. And, that, and crude oil is, is, is an exception because that is more a, a factor of, of a horrible policy uh, that's come out of, out of D.C. And I don't even want to get into that right now. But when we look at soybeans, look at lumber, look at the staples that people are talking about that are really affecting their daily lives right now when they go to the grocery store. Those markets are telling us that we're probably at peak inflation right now, and I hate using that term. But more than likely, we're going to see disinflationary pressure work in. And, and not only that, remember, you're talking about the, the people in technology that have come out. The, you know, Intel came out and told us we still have another 10 years of Moore's Law, which is going to make things cheaper and faster. And if that's the case, you know, look for more automation. Look for more Elon Musk's. Uh, to come out of the woodwork and, 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 and change the way we're leaving our lives. But, but having said that, and I don't want to get too philosophical, looking at the markets themselves, we are looking at what looks to be disinflationary pressure hitting the markets within the next two years. And if that's the case, look for that 10-year to probably cap off around that 3 3.5%. But Jim, uh, it's an interesting point. Commodity futures are actually trending lower. 
Jack, uh, what's the timing? Which contracts are you looking at now? When does it start? When does the backwardization start? It, it starts right away. Like, for example, if you look at soybeans, soybeans, you know, settled at 1681. Uh, you know, you can go out two years to, to May of 23, and they're trading down under 1480. Uh, you know, but, but if you look two or three months from now, they're trading cheaper. A year from now, they're trading cheaper. So, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to the contango that we would usually see, uh, mm-hmm. which is prices going higher over time. So all of that, it really gives me the feeling that, that not only are, are the commodity prices um, you know, uh, mispriced, and we're going to see a repricing. But with it, what you were talking about is that stock market. Everything that has been artificially priced, the bond market, the commodity market, the stock market, is all going to be repriced, and we're in the middle of it right now. Jim LeCamp, what are stock futures telling us, Is index futures telling us? Well, uh, in the short run, the stock futures look terrible. Um, the, and uh, we are, you could argue that the semiconductor index has sold off enough that it's going to test the support level. But it, it, when I look at the, the, the chart on the futures on the, on the, uh, NASDAQ and on anything related to technology, those charts are not ready yet. And investors need to be very careful. The only place that people have been able to hide are um, defensive stocks, which are, are now selling at pretty high premiums to their historical evaluation rates. And so the only place to hide has been in the commodity-related areas. Hmm. But we're not early. I mean, it's, it's, we're at least in the seventh inning here. I mean, we're not, uh, we're not early in that game, so you have to be a little careful even about those. But we're, we're loaded up in energy, and uh, we've got some of the agriculturals. The fertilizers have been strong. Those have been the only places to hide. The charts on the, the uh, S&P, the Dow, um, the NASDAQ futures still do not look ready to be bought. In fact, to me, they look like they want to go lower. And let's not forget, we're about to enter that May through October time frame, which is historically uh, more volatile and less rewarding for stocks anyway. And uh, with the Fed set to hike 50 bips in May, maybe another 50 in June, uh, it's going to be uh, pretty volatile. I think we need to be more selective. Remember, when the Fed was adding liquidity from 2008 on, it was just an asset allocation decision, throw money in stocks. So stock picking really wasn't rewarded that much. It was really about uh, playing along with the Fed. Now we're in a time frame where the Fed's pulling liquidity, and stock picking is going to become far more similar to what we saw in the late 70s and early 80s where certain groups do well while the indices may not do so well. And I think investors need to be aware of this. Jack Bruzen, what are the food commodities, the ag commodities telling you? Well, they're telling us the same story. They're telling us that, that the market is coming off in the future. But, you know, something that Jim just talked about, the fertilizer stocks, which are very important, that it seems to be one of the driving factors in the markets right now. When you go down to southern Illinois, when you talk to these these uh, corn and soybean farmers, they will tell you their biggest concern right now are fertilizer prices. So, uh, you know, if, if there's anything that we should... Is that because, about, of, the, uh, is that because of the uh, spike in oil? That is because of the fact that we import more of that fertilizer from Russia oh. uh, and the Ukraine. And the Ukraine. Place. They're number one and number three. That's right. Mm. That's right. Huh. 
And, and a lot of those decisions were made because, quite frankly, we didn't want to do the mining here. Uh, yeah. And we didn't want to even take it from our neighbors up in Canada. Uh, you know, where All right, we kids. A lot of the potash. Jack Brugian, thank you. Jim LeCamp, thank you. Happy and Holy Easter, everybody. Folks, stick around. We're going to do Money in Politics with Liz Peake and Steve Moore right after this brief message. I'm Larry Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. This is The Larry Kudlow Show. We go to our Money in Politics segment. Liz Peake, Fox News contributor, Hill columnist, Steve Moore, Freedom Works Committee to Unleash Prosperity, new book, Govzilla. Kids, welcome back. Uh, happy Passover, happy and holy Passover, happy and holy Easter. And we have a tailor-made discussion point from today's Wall Street Journal editorial page. We begin with the eternal COVID emergency. <laughs> Health and Human Services extends the crisis again so it can keep the extra welfare flowing. HHS Secretary Javier Becerra on Wednesday extended the national public health emergency for another 90 days. Why? Because permanent crisis means more dependence on government. Liz Peek, I begin with you. The eternal COVID emergency. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually thought that was an excellent article. And uh, I wrote something about this for the New York yes. Sun yesterday because I just think Democrats are sort of losing their minds. People really want to move on. Even Anthony Fauci, for heaven's sakes, has said now it's up to individuals, you know, to assess their own risk and make decisions. And we know we need to treat people like adults. Uh, but what we're seeing is rolling backwards, mask mandates being introduced in colleges in Philadelphia. Uh, mm -hmm. Eric Adams doing this ridiculous thing of requiring infants, small children under five years old to wear masks. I, I actually don't know what they're thinking because, yes, cases are up a tiny fraction. Hospitalizations, deaths, not so. They are still going down, which is great. Uh, so I think this is stupid. And by the way, it really points the hypocrisy on the Title 42 issue. Why are we relaxing Title 42, which keeps people from uh, staying in the country, coming in the country across our southern border because health reasons? If we can do that, how in the world do we have a national emergency ongoing? The key phrase there, Democrats are losing their minds. Yeah. I just love, I love that. So, Steve Moore, how did these COVID lockdowns work? You wrote a long piece about this. How's this thing working for the government? Yeah, look, uh, your uh, friend of mine, uh, Casey Mulligan, and I, and uh, Phil Kirpin, who's an expert on COVID, uh, did this pretty comprehensive study uh, on looking at the 50 states and which states, because it's been basically two years now, which states got it right, both in terms of um, keeping their citizens healthy and safe, but also looking at how did they keep their economies functioning, and then most importantly, did they keep their kids in school? Because we now know, as Liz was saying, that, um, that probably the, one of the greatest mistakes in American history was shutting down our schools. It did incredible damage to children with zero benefits, except for the teachers' unions didn't want to teach. In any case, so if you look at those three variables and say, okay, which states got it right? You know, it's basically states like Nebraska, Utah, Vermont, Florida. Florida actually had a very good record. Um, kept their economy open. They had, uh, they didn't have a you know slew of business 
failures. They didn't have millions of people in unemployment lines like California. And the states that had the worst record, Larry, were states like New York, New Jersey, California, Illinois. Gee, what do those states all have in common? Uh, But here's the thing that's frustrating to me in terms of, look, it's one thing to have made mistakes two years ago when we were dealing with the virus. We didn't know exactly what we were facing. There was a bit of a panic among the public and politicians. But here we are two years later, and it's almost as if the politicians have learned absolutely nothing. They're, they're, they're putting in place the exact same policies that were huge failures, and that is quite distressing to me, I must say. I mean, for, to continue to talk about lockdowns. By the way, if you read the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN, you'd, you'd think that the lockdowns were effective. They were a massive failure, massive failure. You know, Liz, one <clears throat> one part of this is suspending work requirements, okay? Yep. That's yep. really uh, one of the most damaging parts of this story. Uh, paying people not to work, no more work fare. And this editorial is so interesting to me because they talk about how Food stamps continue to rise. Welfare continues to rise. And that means, again, welfare without workfare. This is um, debilitating to the whole society. Yeah, and, and particularly, Larry, when what is our number one economic problem in this country right now? According to every poll, every American says it's inflation. What is one of the germs of inflation right now? that's causing it is a labor shortage. So why on earth would you apply programs which were never meant to be this way and allow people basically to not work, to, give, to get benefits, able-bodied people without dependents? This is, these aren't single moms with six kids. These are able-bodied people without dependents being given money and not being required to work or go into job training or anything. You know, we've, we've experimented with this before. It always ends up badly, and it always ends up being reversed because it is such a terrible policy. Nobody should be in that position. And so, I, I actually thought the article was well-balanced because it mentions, yeah, down the, when the economy collapsed under COVID, maybe there was, you know, a moment in time where it made sense to help everybody. That is no longer the case. Right now, any able-bodied person willing to work can get a job. And, boy, we need those people to go to work. The labor participation rate has barely, barely edged up, and that needs to happen to, to begin to put a cap on inflation. Yeah, Steve Moore, as of January, there were nearly 2.5 million more households receiving food stamps mm. than in 2019 and 500,000 more than in April 2020. That's with um, <clears throat> very tight labor markets, as Liz has pointed out. So it, it sort of begs credulity. And the question here is, where's Congress on this? Where's Congress, both parties? Yeah. Uh, let me just add something to the, to the whole story of all these um, welfare benefits. The, the fraud rates have gone absolutely through the roof. So our friend um, Kevin Brady, who is the ranking Republican on the Ways and Means Committee, has done a pretty – thorough investigation, although more investigation needs to be done, they estimate um, about $150 billion in fraud in the unemployment benefit program, over $100 billion, not billion, not million, $100 billion fraud in uh, in Medicaid and food stamps. And then there was also massive fraud in the PPP program. Nobody does anything about this. (laughs) And so not only do you have uh, massive expenditures for these programs. Half the money is going to people who aren't even eligible. And what we've learned over the last two years, another lesson is, you know what? 
what happens when you pay people not to work, Larry? Yeah, they don't work. <laughs> they don't work. <laughs> <laughs> Buzz, hit the red button. So um, wasn't there massive fraud in the unemployment benefits? Yeah, 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 yeah 100, $150 billion. $150 billion. That we, By the way, do you know how much they've recovered from of the fraud? 20 less cents. Than two, less than, <laughs> less than <laughs> $2 billion. So that means they've, they've recovered about 1% of the fraud. And, and by the way, people say, well, that stimulates the economy. No, the money went to Africa, went to South America. Went to <laughs> right. It's not even here China. in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> money goes to China, actually. Yeah, well, so Liz, what um, inflation is wreaking havoc on real wages, and inflation is public enemy number one, as you noted at the beginning. And what are we going to do about this inflation? Well, know what you and I are going to do about it. I'm pretty sure the White House isn't going to do anything about it. I, the most uh, hilarious thing they've done this weekend or week uh, is to reverse their stance opposing uh, drilling for oil on federal lands because, of course, energy prices are through the roof. They keep telling us it's Putin's price hike, but Americans aren't buying that because they know that Biden came into office and basically stepped on U.S. oil and gas producers. So now, in an about face that was released or revealed uh, Friday of a holiday, important holiday weekend where almost no one noticed it, uh, now they've done this about face, which, of course, is tempered to such a degree. It's a tiny fraction that they want to allow now to be leased of what was going to be leased, and they're raising royalty rates by a rough calculation, 50 percent, to make it less agreeable, less enticing for oil and gas companies to to uh, drill on these on these leased lands. Honestly, there is nothing coherent about the White House policy. If this is their attempt to increase U.S. oil and gas production, it is a mile too late and too short. Uh, and and I think the industry is just going to ignore it altogether. By the way, Steve Moore, after this Strategic Petroleum Reserve announcement of all these sales, I just want to note that um, West Texas crude is back to $107 yeah. a barrel. Yeah, it just is. Saying. It is. Just saying. Yeah, right. You know, the problem, you know, I agree with obviously everything Liz just said about the, you know, what Biden is trying to do now. But, you know, I've talked to oil executives. You've had oil executives on your show, Larry. They don't trust Biden. You can't have one day you can drill and the next day you can't. One day you can, you can't. We, you can build pipelines, then you can't. I mean, be, these businesses aren't going to make billions of dollars of investments with Biden in the White House when he when his basic half of his staff says they want to bankrupt the oil and gas companies. So this is a you put it very well. This is not an act of nature. This is a self-inflicted wound. We should. I really believe, Larry. You know, when when Trump left office, we were at about 11 million barrels a day. Now we're down to about 10 million. I think if Trump were still president, we'd be at 15 million barrels a day yeah, production. Well, we were at 13 million plus. I got to take a and quick now, break. Yeah, we'll come back. Yeah, before, I mean, before COVID, and, and we would be. We have so much oil and gas in this country. You know, the idea that we're getting it from Russia and Iran and Saudi Arabia today makes no sense to the American people. No one understands the Biden strategy. It, it's this religion of climate change has become truly a religion for these people. They, are, they have a complete obsession. It's all they care about. They don't care about inflation. They don't care about crime. They don't right, care me, about the border. They care about climate change. And let me take a quick break. Change the temperature of the planet. We're talking to Liz Peak. We're talking to Steve Moore. On the other side of the break, guess what? Monday is tax day. It's a wonderful thing. The day after Easter this year is tax day. 
Liz Peek, Steve Moore. I'm Kudlow. We'll be right back. From Wall Street to the White House, this is the Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. We're here with Liz Peek, Fox News contributor and columnist, and Steve Moore, Freedom Works and Committee to Unleash Prosperity, and Godzilla is his latest book. So, kids, um, let's see. U.S. tax revenues set another record of $2.1 trillion under Biden in the last six months. That's one headline from the Washington Times. Another headline from the Tax Foundation blog uh, website is Biden budget would raise income tax rates to highest in developed world. And Monday is tax day. In fact, we will be having a great special on that. Fox Business, Cudlow, 4 to 5 p.m. You both are going to be on that on set, I believe, which is really going to be awesome. Anyway, um, Liz Peek, tax day. Are you happy about this? What do you think? Uh, I think is this our a wonderful policy. event. <laughs> yeah, it was really something to celebrate, Larry. Um, <laughs> I noticed that uh, Joe Biden paid a tax rate of twenty four point six percent, and I can't wait to hear how he did that because, boy, that sure isn't what we're paying. Uh, and uh, I don't really, you know, that's a pretty low rate. Um, look, I, I've been thinking a lot about this because New York State is driving people out so dramatically uh, with by continuing to raise taxes, even though they don't need to. And I think that kind of gets at what you're pointing out. Revenues have been going up, and, and all Democrats want to do in states and cities uh, and in the federal government is to raise tax rates. So you have to kind of wonder why. I mean, what's the point of that? If, if we don't need to do it, we should not be doing it, because it, it obviously, uh, on a state and city basis, uh, chases people away. And on a federal basis, it just sort of, you know, basically leads us into corners we should not be in. So I, I have to say, I think it's very discouraging. I think our tax policy is a complete mess at the moment. Uh, I really do love the flat tax argument. Um, I think that's such a brilliant idea. We'll, we'll never get there. Uh, but it, it is one way to eliminate all the loopholes and, you know, virtue signaling and all the rest of the stuff uh, because right now it's just like a feeding trough for officials, and and you know it's just incredibly unhealthy for the country. I mean, I'm well, sort of babbling because it makes me so mad, honestly. <laughs> well, look at uh, Joe Biden. He paid 24, 25 percent tax rate on 600 grand plus yeah. of income, but that's that's on a seasonally adjusted Hunter Biden laptop basis. Right? <laughs> that doesn't include his laptop, what I'm going to call his laptop money. And Steve Moore, I want to ask you about the IRS, which is going to be a topic of our tax special on Monday. Um, the IRS got a funding boost, allowing it to hire more than 10,000 new employees to deal with tax collection and a massive filing backlog. How's that working? How's that IRS stuff working? What do you think? Well, first of all, I'm going to just disagree with one thing that Liz said. I actually believe, I mean, we both, we all three agree that Steve Forbes had the right idea of the flat tax, but I really think people are just so fed up with the system. I, I, I think the moment may be arriving for some really radical simplification of the tax code that raises the money that we need, but gets rid of all the special interests. And that would be, I mean, think of what that would mean for our economy. If we could get that tax rate down to say 19 and a half percent. And we just suck so much capital from the rest of the world. We wouldn't have 
this inflation problem. We wouldn't have this problem, uh, you know, with with the low growth we've had with the economy. Um, the IRS, uh, we don't, we wouldn't need, you know, eighty thousand IRS agents with with a simplified tax system. I mean, and and let's not forget that uh, Lois Lerner, uh, Lerner who uh, ran the IRS enforcement for Obama, you know, weaponized the IRS and used it to go after political enemies. And that's, mm-hmm. I fear, that's exactly what Joe Biden's going to do with these extra 10,000 uh, IRS. Of course yeah. he is. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, let's peek. When Ronald Reagan left Washington, D.C. in early 1989, there were two tax rates, 15% <laughs> and 28%. Yeah. Just want to, yeah. that's just a bit of, and that was the law, two yeah. tax rates. That was all we had. Now, we've come a long way away from that, unfortunately. Yeah, and, what's, you know, it's interesting, Larry, if you think back to when President Trump uh, put forward his tax plan, his tax proposals, uh, the most popular thing by far was his promise to ba- basically make it so that everything could be on one postcard. Remember, mm-hmm. it was kind of, it, yes, it was lowering rates, but polling showed that Americans actually more cared about having it be simpler because mm-hmm. Because in the complexity, we know there's a lot of skullduggery. We know there's uh, things that are handed out to special interest groups and special ventures, whether it's climate change or some other uh, preferred cause. That's, it, it, it completely deceives from the people, from the voters, what really money is going for. Uh, again, I'm sort of babbling about this because, again, it just infuriates me. But, for example, when people talk about electric car, you can run them for free or, you know, solar energy is so cheap. None of those things is true, but we don't know it because of all the tax benefits that those industries are getting. On the other side of the coin, they always talk about taking away the tax handouts to the oil and gas business. They aren't handouts. It's exa- The depletion allowance is exactly like depreciation. It basically mm-hmm. means you can charge against income the cost of drilling wells and producing oil. Mm-hmm. So it's also dishonest. And like so many else, other things in our government, it hides very important issues. And, you know, I hope Steve's right. I hope there is a groundswell of enthusiasm for a flat tax because, boy, oh, boy, does it make sense. Well, Steve, by the way, Larry, do you, do you want to know saying, Larry, who does? We've been saying this for thirty years, ever yeah. since Reagan left. Yeah. We've been yeah, saying the country's ready yeah. for a flat tax. Um, Steve, uh, yeah. no, go, ahead. go well, ahead. I just wanted to mention one thing, Larry. Do you know who does the uh, taxes in the Moore household? And. And so you don't want to be around anywhere near her. <laughs> well, Judy, Judy Cudlow, my saintly, my so, saintly wife, know, Judy a, Cudlow. She's angry about how much we're paying, uh, but B, she's angry about it. It's just so freaking complicated. Yeah, you know? know. And why does it have to be so complicated? Why does it have to take hours and days and weeks to figure out how much taxes you owe? Yeah, well, my saintly <laughs> wife, Judy, is in the same boat. She's in a bad mood. <laughs> It's exactly the same. You do your family taxes. <laughs> I don't. Why do we let the women do our taxes? Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I have to, we'll have to have a segment on that at some time. Can I, uh, one point, you know, this business about the Biden budget would raise the income tax rates to the highest in the uh. developed world. You know, uh, Steve, who buried Biden's tax hikes this past week? Kirsten Cinema. She came out with yep. a strong statement yep. burying it. Good for oh. her. You know, good for her. 
Well, you know, the Democratic Party has shifted so much in the last 30 years. You know, you mentioned that uh, tax bill that uh, Reagan did, the tax reform bill in, in 1986 that lowered the rate to 28 percent. That passed 97 to 3 right. in the United States Senate. 97. That means Ted Kennedy voted for it. Uh, Joe Biden voted Joe Biden. for it. Al yep. Gore ba- voted for it. I mean, uh, you know, all these Howard Metzenbaum, remember these famous liberals? Everybody mm-hmm. agreed, you know, let's have a broad-based tax system with a low rate. Now I don't think you could get a single Democrat in the t- – maybe Kristen Sinema being the only one who would yeah. be in favor of going back to a 28% tax rate. They, my God, they want to raise the rate to 50 60 70%. No, it's since Joe Manchin killed the spending and Kristen yep. Sinema killed the tax hike. And i got to yeah. give them uh, both. Uh, both uh, them. E- Man e- and woman of the year. Yeah, no, no, it's, it's it's really a huge contribution to American life, absolutely. Um, so, Liz, do you do the taxes in your household? <laughs> no, I do not. I would lose my mind. I mean, when I was when I was starting out on Wall Street and and uh, you know got some bonuses and and nothing like what is paid today, certainly, but. I, you know, was doing pretty well for someone right out of school. I used to cry when I talked to the tax guy. I literally would be in tears. I couldn't understand why they were taking so much money away from me. So, you know, it only got worse. It's only gotten worse. But let's go back to Joe Biden's. I want to go back to understanding why he paid 24.6%. Yeah, I know. Pretty remarkable. And that's this all is... capital gains. I don't know how he did that. This is laptop excluded, by the way. Remember Well, that. and actually, Larry, no kidding. I mean, if you actually go back, if, if Hunter Biden was paying a lot of Joe Biden's uh, expenses, mm-hmm. that's something somebody had to report that because you ha- there's a limit on what you can give somebody in the way of a gift, right? There's a gift tax yes. limit. Uh, and it, I wonder if anyone has ever looked into that. I think we're trying to. You know, yeah. they're, they're sweeping the computer uh Completely. This, the guy is in Geneva, Switzerland, Geneva or Zurich. He was one of Steve Bannon's guys. I can't think of his name right now, but we're going to know a lot more about that laptop uh, before too long. Steve Moore, what what do you want us to do on the tax day on the show on Monday? Uh, let's make the strongest case possible with our friend Steve Forbes for blowing up the tax code and yeah. making it simple. I love the idea of the postcard return, Liz. That, boy, that would make life so wonderful. That's Wouldn't right. it, though? Steve Moore, Liz Peak. thank you, kids. Appreciate it. We will see you on Monday. Fox Business, 4 to 5 p.m., special on tax policy. I'm Larry Kudlow. Thanks for listening. We will see you next weekend.